the reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. I invite your hearing of God's word uh, both uh, in joy, but also in faith. So from Romans chapter 4. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I invite you to join me again in a time of prayer. Father, again, we come before you in prayer to praise you, to adore our great God. God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things in the heavens and the earth and the sea, uh, who keeps faith forever. And for the Son of God, he who came down from heaven for us and for our salvation, and to the, the Spirit of God, uh, who comes to us and dwells us, gives us new birth, new life, uh, ears to hear the voice of the beloved, hearts uh, desiring to follow him, who comforts and strengthens and guides us in the way of life and righteousness. We are profoundly thankful. Great is our salvation, and it is all of God's doing. Uh, we are thankful for the uh, privilege of prayer, the time when we can come and make supplication for others, acknowledging that we all come in some measure of weakness or distress uh, in a circumstance of life. It is the life under the sun. It happens to us all in various ways and various measures. So I pray for any here that uh, are... Um, stressed over some issue of life. Pray that you would intervene in that situation on their behalf in ways that are wise and good. Bring those circumstances to a good conclusion. And in the midst of perhaps circumstances that would cause us to be disheartened or perplexed, unsettled, give uh, that grace of peace that passes understanding, as we uh, also have grace uh, to wait upon you to act in our behalf. We do pray, Father, that you would uh, watch over us, protect us from all the dangers that abound in this fallen world, uh, spreading disease, lawlessness of violent men, spiritual dangers. The world holds out its lures to uh, perhaps steal our hearts away. Uh, preserve us. Keep us, O oh Father, both individually and as a congregation. Uh, help us to stand firm. Uh, help us to bear one another's burdens. Uh, to have a careful heart for each other's uh, burdens. To be models of genuine love. But now, Father, we have come to hear the word and to meet with you in the word. Your word is living and active, sharp. May it do its work in us and for us today uh, through the ministry of Phil. Uh, but uh, 
through the great spirit who illuminates the words to us. May it be so this morning. We have come to meet with you. We pray that you would meet with us and bless your word to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name, to whom we give all glory, laud, and honor. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, Lord hear our prayers. It's fairly common for uh, people to uh, uh, that are Christians that get involved in questions like, um, what is the only true church? If you think about the progress of the geographic progress of faith, the Eastern Orthodox has a, has a valid answer to that and say, well, we're the oldest. That's where the church began, so they claim to be true church. As uh, the church moves west, uh, well, we get into Rome. Rome's going to say, well, we're the true church. So how can you know if you're in a true church or not? But we are Grace Bible Church. Uh, 20 centuries removed. Uh, well, the issue is uh, the issue is not geography and time. It's uh, the doctrinal succession of uh, the theology that comes from Abraham. He defines true churches. Theology that Abraham brings to us, uh, Romans chapter 4. And in that sense, it's very interesting that uh, the way that Abraham was saved is the instrumentality of faith in a Redeemer. Uh, that there's continuity between uh, the Testaments in that regard. That's why Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He's defining for us a true church. Uh, I believe we're a true church because our theology is the theology of Abraham. Genesis 15, first book of the Bible. So it's not, again, geography. It's time, I think, is important. Roman Catholics will always say, yeah, you reformers. I mean, you, your church started in the 16th century. No, our church started in Genesis chapter 15. We go way beyond the first 16th century. So, again, it's important to understand the majesty of the Scriptures and the unity of our belief today at Grace Bible Church with Genesis 15.6, the unity, the continuity, the conformity of our faith and doctrine, it's the same, same as Abraham. So I, I pray in that regard we can have the assurance that this is the true church because we're linked to the Apostle Paul and, of course, to our spiritual forefather in Abraham. And how did Abraham come to faith? Well, he had faith alone in the work of God alone, the work of the Redeemer that God was going to provide, and that Redeemer alone. The Reformers capture that, of course, in the solace. Faith alone, Christ alone, by grace alone. That, I think, defines true church. So let's begin uh, this, uh, this journey, uh, verses uh, 23 to first part of verse 24, that faith is the sole instrument of our justification. The allusion to verse 23, again to Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. It's a doctrine of justification. Definitive of a true church. Uh, the reverse of that is 
one should be very wary if they reject the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sad to say, many, most American churches do that. The Reformed Church does not. So we, we are linked to Abraham. Uh, the doctrine of imputation is decisive, simply a legal declaration. The court of God says, based upon the righteousness of Christ, charge to your account. Received by faith. It's the pillar of the church. And Paul is establishing, of course, that there were no works either antecedent or subsequent in Abraham's life as the basis of his justification. In that sense, he sweeps away much of American Protestantism that says that we contribute. Our works are involved. We are saved by faith, but not faith alone. We are saved by grace, but not grace alone, because we contribute. Paul is radical in affirming that Abraham believed before he was circumcised. No antecedent works whatsoever and no subsequent works because we contribute nothing. And our works, as I've stated over and over again, are not the basis of our justification because our works are imperfect and temporal and God only accepts perfection and only Christ can deliver His perfect obedience to the law, the entire basis of our imputation, that he simply charges to our account his obedience, and God the Father accepts us. Not just now, but forever. Because we're not saved by subsequent works either. Furthermore, there is no further need for satisfaction Christ, the perfect sacrifice, one time for all time. Most uh, Roman Catholic churches, uh, the Mass is a unbloody, continual, perpetual sacrifice of Christ. We don't need to do that. Christ's time upon the cross was efficient to save. And in contrast to all who hold to faith and works, we link ourselves to the proclamation of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Again, I, I remind you in terms of church history that Rome, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Arminianism continue to work to satisfy the liability of future sin. We do not. In our call to worship, the doctrine of justification. He pardons all of our sins. All. All-encompassing. Based upon the righteousness of Christ charged to our account. And again, it's a reminder that Abraham's faith did not save him. It was the instrumentality. Christ saved him. But it was apprehended by faith. And it is this illustration uh, that Paul was using time and again, Romans chapter 4, taking us back in definitive of a true church and the true doctrine of the church that passed down through the ages from Genesis 15 uh, that defines what a true church is. And we, we really theologically could go all the way back to 
Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because God provided a sacrifice and rejected their works. And so if you look at Romans chapter 4, in the first part of verse 24, but it wasn't just written for Abraham, but for our sakes also. Sweeping away everyone who lays claim to be the true church, except the church that's defined by Paul and our father Abraham from Genesis 15.6. Everyone today claims uh, Pelagius, Arminius, Socinus, the Pope. We lay claim to the scriptures, the Apostle Paul, all the other apostles too, by the way, they all were consistent. And of course, Abraham. The unity, continuity of the scripture and our theology defines us. And this faith, uh, second part of verse 24 to 25, is in him who raised Jesus from the dead. So God's the author of our faith. We believe. And our faith apprehends what God did for us in the resurrection. A very quick reminder, uh, it's important to remember that the divinity of Christ did not die on the cross. Divinity can't die because God is immutable. His humanity died not his divinity, because God cannot die. God lives forever, eternal, only eternal being is God. But the eternal God, the God-man died upon the cross. His humanity died upon the cross. So the focus here is the humanity of our Savior and that God resurrected him. Very interesting, uh, somewhat of a puzzling theological issue here, but there are uh, other texts that uh, support and defend of Christ resurrecting himself. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 is but one. Uh, uh, the, the eternal son didn't need the father to resurrect him, uh, but I think the description here is God the father resurrected his humanity. And this text documents the unity and continuity, not only of our faith, but of the Trinity in saving us the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that the object of faith is the same as Abraham's. Uh, he was looking prospectively, we look retrospectively. Defining the true church throughout the centuries. Uh, the text is also cementing, again, those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead and who was delivered up because of our transgression, was raised because of our justification. Cementing the connection between the resurrection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the redemption accomplished by Christ with our justification applied by Christ. Definitive of who we are throughout the centuries. A timeless faith, an eternal faith. Resurrection, of course, is central. Public display of his vindication. 
Uh, Romans uh, chapter 3 and verse 25. At his resurrection, Paul says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Publicly displayed our Savior's satisfaction for sin, for all sin. The resurrection here has two elements. First, uh, Paul says he was delivered up for our transgressions. He removed in one eternal act the liability of punishment due us, thereby obviating the need for any future satisfaction. As I, on occasion, uh, quote uh, John Murray, who I believe is really quoting Francis Turretin, you don't repeat perfection. Uh, text is also an echo of the fourth servant song of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 53. If you have your Old Testament, I encourage you to turn there because, again, I think Paul is uh, referencing uh, that text. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53. We read uh, verses 4 and 5 and then verses 11 and 12 and uh, give attention to the word transgression. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now verses 11 and 12. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out into death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Uh, in, in the Greek text of Romans chapter 4, um, uh, the verb delivered and raised or in the passive voice, uh, meaning to me that God the Father was the agent, delivered up his son for our transgression and raised him for our justification. Divine passive meaning God is doing the acting upon his son for us, the many. It's a provision of God for our sins. The context of uh, Isaiah 53 is the uh, recapitulation of the nature of the atonement and something just as radical. It's success. The success of the atonement. The violence of the atonement was due to the satisfaction required extraction of divine justice, which is eternal, breaking upon an eternal person. And that eternal person never broke because eternity cannot break. That's why our Savior is divine. 
God was satisfied, meaning that the sacrifice had a greater purpose, namely to redeem his people. And the servant becomes uh, their guilt offering. I would add something that is most important. The language here is not contingent upon any human action. That's where I think so many uh, churches fail. They make the divine actions contingent upon the human. God doesn't do that. He doesn't need to do that. The divine action alone is sufficient. We apprehend it by faith, but even that caused by the grace of God. Because dead men can't believe. The point of my statement is that the divine action secures our action of faith. And the redemption accomplished by Christ upon the cross does not mean redeemability. God doesn't leave anything left to us. He's the sole agent. He makes the provision an eternal provision in His only begotten Son. He doesn't put us into a redeemable estate, leaving it uh, to us to do something. He does it all. That's what Abraham believed in Genesis 15, that God was going to provide a righteous lamb. That was his hope. He believed it, and God charged to his account the righteousness of Jesus Christ, prospectively speaking. We look retrospectively to the entirety of the provision of Christ. The success of the atonement it was many people fail at. Namely, he was successful in everything to accomplish salvation. He left nothing left to us. Because one thing imperfect temporal humans are very prone to do is to muck it all up. He leaves nothing to human contingency. He does it all on the cross. And for the success of the God-man, God rewards and vindicates his son. His resurrection makes public display so that all could see it. I mean, the, the historiography of the resurrection is, in my mind, impeccable. I mean, we might quibble over what he did upon the cross, but not the historic fact of it. And if the Son was successful, our union with Him means that our faith will be successful as well. We will be justified and we will be vindicated and in a future time our bodies will be resurrected. All because of Christ upon the cross. And so, the true church, tracing back to Genesis 15, Abraham believed by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Our faith is linked uh, to the first book of the Scriptures. Not to the 1600s. Not to the first century of the church in the East, but to a doctrinal succession that defines us. By the way, if you're not a Christian, uh, you lack uh, what only God can provide. 
and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that God the Father will accept. The public display of it in the resurrection documents that. Because he vindicated his son. It's the only, only thing he will accept. Uh, most Christians and certainly non-Christians believe in some vague concept that we must get right with God. And hopefully our getting right will outweigh our getting wrong. <laughs> Go figure that. When God is eternally perfect. And everything that we do respecting the faith is wrong apart from His Son. Because that's what humans do. So I'll take Christ. Thank you. I trust you do as well. You're in safe ground. He raised His Son. Meaning He will raise us as well. Because of the victory that He accomplished. The second element of the resurrection is that he was raised to secure our justification, meaning it was effective. How do we know? He was raised from the dead. Quoting commentary in the psalmist, the only shepherd beyond the grave, only Christ. And that resurrection links our legal just declaration of the righteousness of God to his resurrection. He accomplished it. He secured it. It's our guarantee. Now I understand that the application occurs in time, and that's the beauty of the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and then the Holy Spirit who comes into time, breaks into our lives, gives us new hearts. We believe, and he applies... Uh, the righteousness of Christ and charges it to our account based upon the work of Christ and resurrection. But the power of the cross makes it certain. It is as if the power that resurrected the Son is so great and majestic it transcends all of time, gathering the church of all ages by its power and bringing them to the Savior and granting them the faith to apprehend it. When you talk about power, man, that's power. Eternal power, transcending time. Gathering that which is dead, bring it to life. Now, why can I say that? Well, look at Romans. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. So shall your descendants and be. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. What is dead doesn't stop God. He makes alive what is dead. He brings to life. It occurs to us spiritually in that resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, uh, when we were dead in our sins, spiritually dead, we had no life. There was no life whatsoever. There wasn't an ounce of life. There wasn't a flickering flame. It was gone and quenched by 10 million gallons of water buried at the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. But Paul says, when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. The resurrection's begun in our hearts through the power of God, trailing the first resurrection 
Christ from the dead. And that's power. It's also the gospel that defines a true church throughout the centuries. We do not point to Eastern Orthodoxy, the Roman Catholic Church. We, we point to Genesis 15. with looking forward to the resurrection accomplished by Christ. That he inaugurates eternal life uh, now. Uh, the, the expansion of this, uh, Paul will begin to discuss in subsequent chapters, but the expansion is absolutely a spellbinding, if you will. Uh, just to discuss uh, a few uh, momentarily. Um, Christ uh, secures every, every spiritual blessing for us, nothing withheld. This is our break from, say, the holiness and charismatic churches, where there's a second work of grace. My friend, there's only one work of grace. It's the Christ. Grace alone, Christ alone, in that time alone. And the grace of God and the Holy Spirit accomplishing it in time. Now turn with me, if you would, to um, book of Ephesians. Let's look at three very quickly. Uh, three successive blessings that have come to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. When you are in Christ by apprehending by faith the reality of justification, you receive every spiritual blessing, nothing withheld. God doesn't parcel it out over time based upon subsequent works. His work alone. Every spiritual blessing. Nothing withheld. Uh, our adoption. Uh, our new life brings adoption. God adopts us into his eternal family meaning we become heirs of eternal life, heirs of eternity. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. There is grace alone. There is Christ alone. It was the faith that Abraham apprehended in Genesis 15. Adoption as sons. We're the sons of God. That makes us heirs. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. And then, to seal it for all time and to make it immutable, the Spirit seals us. Uh, verse 13, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. A work that cannot be undone, that cannot unravel. If we could unravel it, it wouldn't be a divine work. Be given an illustration of the life of Abraham. Subsequent to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham goes wobbly, just like you and I grow wobbly on occasion. Sarah says, Abraham, this ain't ever going to work, buddy. Try Hagar. Did that unravel Abraham's justification? Absolutely not. 
Because God simply comes and recapitulates the promise. It was never to come through Hagar. If anything could have mucked it up in my mind, it would have been Hagar. But when God saves, he saves forever. He makes it permanent. He makes it immutable. It will withstand the judgment of the end times. And we shall be vindicated in our resurrection at the end of the age. It's a reminder that our justification has decisive permanence to it because God doesn't do temporal. We cannot lose it because what he gained for us is immutable. Conversely, what he won for us, he will never withdraw. That's that theology. Grace alone. Kind intention of his will. In Christ alone. His resurrection secured our justification. Apprehended by faith alone. Defines the true church throughout the centuries. And even from eternity past. Because God so ordained it before the foundation of the world. So I don't worry about all these temporal arguments of the Eastern Orthodox or the Roman Catholics. I'll stick with the scriptures. Genesis 15, 6, recapitulated in Romans chapter 4, and the hope of the gospel. And that God has justified us based upon the work of his son. And so as with Abraham, it is so with us in the same way apprehending, and God imputes it to our account, the very righteousness of his son. It's our peculiar privilege, as uh, you know, at first Sunday of the month to fellowship with our Savior uh, in the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, and certainly from Romans chapter 4, we uh, apprehend uh, the majesty of that work, the continuity of that work, the conformity of that work from the earliest pages of uh, the Bible, uh, the beauty of what it is to have believed in Christ and to be justified by God and the gift of uh, all eternity. And so we come this morning uh, not just to remember the cross and the resurrection, but to fellowship uh, with the Spirit of Christ who comes because he knows we go wobbly. He knows we need to be reminded. Uh, he knows we need sometimes uh, physical elements to remind us and uh, elements of the sacrament. And I remind you it's not in the physical element at all. It's simply apprehending by faith the benefits of the new covenant that Christ is manna from heaven, eternal bread. To eat him, namely to believe in him, is to live forever. And uh, to uh, partake of the cup, the cup of the new covenant, new covenant, that he took away our hearts of stone, gave us hearts of flesh, made us his sons, gave us his spirit, wrote his scripture on our hearts by grace. As, as we pass the elements, I 
I think, in a modicum, I've given you sufficient cause to praise and worship the only Savior. I do remind you, uh, because it's our warrant uh, to remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to properly discern the elements. Nothing in the physical at all, other than some calories. Um, it's in what they represent, Christ our Redeemer. And that we should not come to the table with known sin, for which we are unrepentant. And so we begin every service with occasion for confession and repentance. Uh, but the reminder that uh, we, we should examine ourselves to ensure that uh, we come properly. Uh, we come uh, apprehending the totality that we have been forgiven all of our sins. And we've confessed the residual that always hang about us. Uh, but we come as a confessional people. Uh, and we come to eat and to drink manna from heaven represented uh, in the oven leavened bread before us. And we, we drink the cup of the new covenant. Uh, this is an invitation uh, that is uh, open to all who have confessed Christ and been baptized or not under church discipline and again for not living in known sin for which they are unrepentant. Uh, but again, to, to reflect, to fellowship with our Savior, because he comes as head of the table, and he gives to us reminders, physical reminders, that speak and indicate incredible spiritual realities, that we are the sons of God because of the resurrection and death of our Savior. And uh, even today, as we are wobbly, uh, by his Spirit, he he gives to us strength and encouragement. Uh, I remind you that um, as, we, uh, as we pass the bread, that you should take occasion to have a heart full of thanksgiving, full of joy. Full of joy because we, we are still fallen creatures, but we have been saved forever. And full of joy because it was accomplished totally and entirely by the work of the Son upon the cross, who who was raised for our justification. Uh, if there's something that you need to take to the throne of grace, you certainly have an occasion to do so as the elements are being passed. Uh, but I, I, I join you at some point uh, to worship the living Savior and uh, that His Spirit comes to remind us of all of the benefits that accrue to us as the sons of God because we believed in Christ and he charged the righteousness of the obedience of his son to our account as the entire basis of our salvation. Certainly something to be profoundly thankful for. As uh, we pass the bread, I... I ask that you would hold the element until which time that we're all served. And, uh, and then we will protect together as a display of the unity of this church with the Reformed churches throughout the centuries, certainly to Genesis 15 
but linked obviously to the eternal covenant of redemption in ages gone by. Let's prepare our hearts to uh, receive the bread and to fellowship with our Savior as he gives to us a reminder of what he did for us and that we will partake together as a church that is one throughout the centuries. Lord, we do come with uh, hearts full of thanksgiving and joy, the delight of apprehending all that our Savior did for us and for the forgiveness of all of our sins and for the grace that keeps us safe. And so, Lord, bless us individually and corporately as we partake to signify that we belong uh, to the great triune God and make the blessings that accrue to us full that we might go away strengthened all the more to live for thee and thy kingdom. And may thy kingdom come quickly, Lord, in thy grace. Thank thee for thy goodness to us and bless us as we partake. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. I remind you in the service of uh, the cup, in uh, the center of the service, there's wine, perfectly there's grape juice that each may uh, partake in the freedom of their own traditions. Uh, but more importantly, to realize that uh, Christ uh, shed his blood, display of uh, full payment, full atonement, full atonement, not partial, full atonement, uh, that we might celebrate uh, the new covenant. And what a celebration that should be, even even now, uh, that he gives us new hearts to apprehend. And uh, as we as we uh, pray silently in our hearts, may, may we uh, again have hearts full of joy. Uh, as you uh, take the cup, please hold it, to which time we're all served, and then we will all uh, partake together. Lord, we do remember that it pleased Thee in Thy sovereign good pleasure to drink the cup of eternal wrath, to drink it to its bitter end and all of its dregs, that we might drink the cup of joy, celebration of new life in Christ. May we celebrate in our hearts and bless us individually and corporately that we might shine as lights in this dark and sad world and so be full of joy, announcing to others that there's hope in Christ. And so to testify as well that we belong body and soul to the great eternal God who has saved us the gift of his son. We're thankful for that gift, Lord, and for him who gives it to us that we might remember and be refreshed as we drink. And these things we ask in the name of Christ, our only Redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to thank you uh, for coming to be with us uh, this uh, Lord's Day. According to his uh, divine appointment to uh, meet him in his word and in his sacrament. A uh, couple of announcements. Um, if you look at your bulletin, we are having an organ recital on the 21st of uh, this month at 6 p.m. that will also include accompaniment uh, with uh, bagpipes. So it should be, uh, uh, should be a great time. Um, 
again, trust you will have occasion uh, to join us. There will also be some light refreshments served uh, afterwards. Um, anything else, Bonnie, I need to... Um, we will meet for prayer next Saturday at 8 a.m. Please join us for this important ministry. Uh, I did have occasion to speak with uh, Faye this morning. Uh, she's still um, struggling over health issues, so I encourage you to continue to pray for God's blessing upon her and um, uh, God would be near to her in time of uh, distress. Anyone else have something they'd like to bring to the church uh, before we are dismissed? Uh, well, good enough. Let's stand for concluding prayer and uh, word of benediction. Our Father, we, uh, we go away full of joy. Uh, in the midst of all of the exigencies of our lives, difficult times, whatever they might be, we are one with Abraham and one with his Redeemer. And may the joy of that transcend all of our struggles and remind us that God will vindicate us as well in our own resurrection. And we ask, that please thee, that thou wouldst come quickly. And so the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.